As you're taking your seat, go ahead, grab your Bibles, and open up to the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been marching through the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, it is a unique book. It's a book that addresses uh, our hearts, uh, the concerns of our hearts, the concerns of humanity, um, the most important questions of life. And the, the preacher, as he identifies himself in Ecclesiastes, is continuing to take us on a journey of exploration. And this morning, he wants to address something that every one of us has to wrestle with. He wants to address the topic of our work. And I want to begin by reading the text before we dive in and pull it apart and see what God has to say to us. So look at verse 12 with me in chapter 2. We're going to read all the way down to verse 26. It says this, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done before. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said to my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, There is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart? with which he toils beneath the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him... God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. I find it interesting that, um, generally speaking, the first question that we ask somebody after we find out their name is, hey, what do you do? And I think there's a reason why we typically ask that question. You see, what somebody does tends to tell us a lot about them. Isn't that true? I mean, what you do, at least in a sense, tells us a lot about who you are, your interests, your skills, your abilities, your passions, maybe your desires. I mean, if you tell somebody you're a plumber or an electrician or an accountant or a CEO or an entrepreneur or a stay-at-home mom or a student, it's giving somebody a window into who you are, into maybe what makes you tick. At the very least, it's giving them a window into what takes up a vast amount of your time. 
One of the primary ways we identify ourselves is through what we do. Listen, here's why. Because one of the primary places we find our identity is in what we do. But can we find meaning and purpose through our work? Are we to build our identity on our work? And what will happen if we build our life on what we do? What does the preacher say here? He reminds us already in verse 12 that, listen, if he can't figure out the answer to these questions, then nobody else can, right? He had all of the resources at his fingertips. He had all of the opportunity, the potential. He had all the time. He had all the wisdom given to him by God for this exploration. And if he can't figure it out, he reminds us in verse 12 that, listen, we won't be able to come up with a different answer either. If you remove God from the equation and try to find meaning and purpose in the different arenas of life, the common approaches that we often take that he's addressed in chapter 2, in wisdom, in pleasure, and now we see this morning in work. He says it's a recipe for disaster. That's what he's forcing us to consider this morning. Where do we find our identity? Where do we find our meaning and purpose? And he wants to hone in on this area of our lives, the area of work of vocation, of what we find ourselves doing with the vast majority of the time that we have. But rather than ask us, notice this, what we do for work, instead he's asking us a much deeper question. Here it is. Why do you work? Or why are you working? What are you working for exactly? For many, work is the search for success because we believe that somehow that will give our lives meaning. And he wants to explode this myth that if I only did, my life would be acceptable. The first thing that he wants to address with us when it comes to our work is this, we need to work to know the flaw of inward success. We need to work to know the flaw of inward success. Verses 12 through 17 lay out this idea of wisdom, and and he's really telling us you can work for this. You can work for the sense of, of inward reward, you can work for that sense that we, we often experience in this life when we've done a, a job, you know, the sense of a job well done, the sense of accomplishment, the sense of success in our lives. And, and maybe he says that's what life's all about at the end of the day, that you can somehow get to this place where like, well, you know what, I've really done something meaningful with my life. And here he starts off again by talking about wisdom. He gives us this diatribe again on wisdom. And he says that he sees that there is, no more, there is more gain excuse me, than wisdom than in folly. And he gives this analogy to make this clear. As there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head. But the fool, he says, walks in darkness. In a sense, he's acknowledging that there is a benefit to wisdom. There is something valuable about wisdom itself, especially when it's pitted against foolishness. Even if you're not looking at the ultimate sense of meaning or not looking for wisdom to define your life, there is value in wisdom because it is a safeguard in your life. It at least lets you do some things of value. In order to do a good job, you could argue that you need a degree of wisdom, and it is vastly superior than foolishness. The fool accomplishes nothing. The book of Proverbs says a lot about the fool, the sluggard, the one who is lazy, the one who doesn't do anything of value, the one who is a leech. And the benefit is so obvious here. 
It's like the contrast between light and darkness. At least the wise person can see and do. At least the wise person has his head screwed on properly, can make something of themselves, so to speak. But what he comes to here in the end of verse 14 is that there is a sad conclusion to both the wise and the foolish. Wisdom still, as valuable as it is in a temporary sense, has its limitations. And the limitation here, he says, is death. Look, the end, same end comes to both of them. The same event happens to all of them. He says in verse 15, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very lies? In other words, he gets back to this question, like, what's really the point? Why did I work so hard for wisdom? Why did I work so hard for anything? You see, wisdom can bring success. It can bring a sense of internal success. But the problem is it doesn't last. In the end, the same thing happens to the wise and the fool. It's almost like here he's saying life plays this giant trick on you. You know, where he comes along and says, hey, wisdom's, wisdom's good, right? Like wisdom, wisdom's better than foolishness, right? And you're like, yeah, yeah, wisdom is way better. So you know what? You've got some wisdom. Isn't, it, isn't life just so much better when you're, you're exercising wisdom? You're like, yes, wisdom is great. He's like, it, wisdom's awesome, isn't it? Yes, I love wisdom. He's like, yeah, but you're still going to die. Okay. So what's the point? A one philosophy student wrote a paper, and he posted it kindly online for everybody to see and glean from his wisdom. And here's what he says. He says this. He said, I have lived my life with one main philosophy. In my life, it has proven to be the one thing that keeps me equal to everyone else. Working hard is the only thing people can control. Whoever works the hardest will be the one with the most success. Oh, the profundity. Soak in it. And the preacher says, yeah, okay, but there's one thing you can't control. Death. You can give your life to this and find your life in this, but you will die the same way that the lazy fool dies who accomplished nothing with his life. And you see, with this perspective, work gives us the sense of inner reward because it helps us, listen, to compare ourselves with others. There is a temporary benefit uh, to working hard in this life, and from a secular standpoint, it allows us to hold our life's resume up against other people, and we compare. this is what we do. We do this in our hearts, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, right? Somebody is telling you their list of accomplishments, what they've done with their life. You're looking at their job and how far they've risen on the, the ladder, the career ladder, and you start evaluating your life and start thinking, yeah, you know, yeah, well, I've done that. I've done that too. Yeah, that's not, that's not so great. I mean, I've, I've accomplished this. I mean, what have you done? You see, what happens is we play this comparison game, and here's what that is. Listen, the comparison game between other people and what we've accomplished and what they've accomplished is simply a way to justify or validate our dignity and our worth. That's what we're doing. We're saying, see, I'm valuable. I, I have something special to offer. I've done something. And it gives us, at least if we compare to the right people, right, this, this inner sense of worth, of meaning and purpose. But verse 15 explodes this idea. He says, why, why have I even tried to be very wise? Who cares if I'm wiser than any person who's ever lived? Can you hear Solomon saying this? Who cares? It's 
One person said this, if you know you've worked hard to be a success, that's all that really matters. When was the last time you heard somebody on their deathbed reflecting on their life and the meaning and purpose of life and they gaze off into the the distance and they simply say, well, you know what? I can die a happy man because, man, I worked hard. It doesn't happen. So what about, what about, okay, what about the inward success of legacy? And this concept of legacy is massive, and, and people live to create a legacy. What will people remember me by, in other words? What will people think of me when I'm gone? What will I leave behind that people will praise and will be a source of acclamation, things that somebody will never forget? So many people are driven by this in their lives. This idea especially that they, as they get closer to the end, this idea of the applause of man, uh, the acclaim of man, the acknowledgments. The truth is, listen, none of us wants to be forgotten. Isn't that true? None of us likes the idea that when we die, we may be forgotten. We, we like the idea, especially in our flesh, that we could be celebrated, that we could be made much of, that people will actually get this, miss us when we're gone. And the thought here. In verse 16, you'll notice it with me. He says this, For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. This idea of an enduring remembrance, it actually carries the implication of a celebrated existence, a celebration of of remembrance. An enduring legacy, something that people will look to. You know, in the ancient world, if you didn't leave a legacy, it's as if you never existed. This idea of being celebrated at your death was so significant in the ancient world. And the truth is, it's really no different in our day and age. It's a form of justification. Again, to show the world our value, our worth. Look at what I did We kind of do this with our kids too, don't we? When every once in a while, every once in a while, I mean, probably none of you, you like to brag about your kids, right? And you kind of have this humble approach to it, where you're like, "Hey, you know, you know, my kid, you know, they did, they're doing pretty well in school, and they made the honor roll." Oh yeah, no, my kid, you know, he plays basketball, just the captain of the high school team. That's all. Yeah, he's gonna get a full scholarship. No, no big deal. So we love, listen, what we're doing is we're validating their significance and worth, aren't we? But listen, you want to know what the real truth is? Most parents, listen, when we do this, oftentimes, not all the time, but listen, oftentimes you want to know whose worth we're really trying to dignify? Our own. Yeah, really what we're saying, you know, they're really just a chip off the old block, right? Yeah, they're pretty impressive, but guess what? Guess who made them that way? Huh? Check this out. I was told, I was preaching at a conference uh, last week, I can't keep my dates straight anymore, I was in Calgary preaching at a conference, and um, the purpose of the conference, the the title of the conference was Redeeming Your Time. And somebody said uh, to me, he said, you know what, you know how you need to live your life? You need to live your life for those who are going to be at your funeral. And you know, there's there's a truth there that we need to pay attention to, isn't it? Because so often, we live our lives to please everybody else except the people who matter most. That's the point of that 
that kind of cliche statement. Right? We live for everybody, the pleasure of everybody. We work our tail off to please our, our boss and, and people who don't matter, people who will never show up at our funeral instead of living for those who are actually in our lives, who mean something to us and that we care deeply about. But I, I think that idea of living for those at your funeral actually stops short, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But this idea of living for those who are going to show up at your funeral I mean, life planning books and self-help books and seminars are filled with this idea. In fact, I read one book this past week uh, uh, along those, the, those lines, and, and the author in it said this, I, I want you to take a minute to just step back and close your eyes, and here's what he said, imagine your funeral in a very creative way. You know, like breathe it in, soak it in, use all of your five senses, and experience what it's going to be like to be at your funeral. And the point was, right, what are people going to say about you? Yeah. Yeah, Ian. He lived. But man, aren't those egg salad sandwiches amazing? Pass me another. If people praise the food at your funeral more than they praise you, you might have a problem. People don't want to hear those kind of things. They want to be celebrated at the end of their lives. Many of us want to be remembered for making our mark in our careers, in our community, maybe in our churches. For many of us, and let me bring this a little closer to home, it's all about making a mark on our spouse or on our kids, right? Living for those who matter most, to those who are going to be at our funeral. And parents, uh, we often have this, this really bizarre vision or, or understanding of what our kids think of us or what they're going to say about us down the road. You know, every parent has these, these visions, as our kids get older especially, of their kids' wedding day in particular, right? And parents have this warped idea that their kid, right, on their wedding day, it's, it goes a little something like this, is going to step up to the podium, you know, during the, 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 the reception, you know, glass of champagne in hand, sparkling apple juice, I mean, and... <laughs> And they're going to stand up there and they're going to say, you know what, I, I was going to say some really sweet things about my new bride, but really, really this day is about two very special people. Mom and dad, you have been the best parents a person could have hoped for. Oh, the wisdom and the knowledge that I gleaned from you. It's like the stars in the sky, they cannot be counted. Right? We have this crazy understanding that our kids are going to get up there and say, actually, you are everything to me. You never made any mistakes. You did things so perfectly. In reality, listen, in reality, it usually goes something like this. Oh, yeah, mom and dad, uh, thanks. We couldn't have afforded this without you. Cheers. You see, people want to be recognized and remembered. Even if you only remembered for a time, but verse 16 and 17 tell us this, that listen, there is no enduring remembrance. Everything will one day be long forgotten, and it's a lot sooner than we anticipate, actually. And he says in verse 17, so I hated life. He, he boils down to this conclusion. He sees the, the, the flaw in all of this, and he says, I, I hated life. He's brought to this place of utter despair, because what is done under the sun, remember, that phrase means apart from God, right? He says, it's grievous to me for all is vanity and it's striving after the wind. You can't find meaning in it. You can't find purpose in it. It's hopeless. 
And by the way, even if people do remember you after you're dead, who cares? You're not going to be around to enjoy it. Like, big deal. You see, both the dignity of work and the legacy you will leave in work are erased by death. One commentator said this, he said, if death comes to all and life is all there is under the sun, then it robs everyone's work of its dignity and every project of its point. You see, if you live for the inward success alone, it's only a matter of time before you see that it's meaningless vanity and striving after the wind, and the result of this perspective will be utter despair. He hated life, he says. Not just his own, he hated yours too. It's just life. It's like life is terrible. So, okay, so it's not the inward success that maybe we are to be working for. Maybe there's another path that we need to explore. Maybe it's the outward success. Maybe it's the fruit of our labor, the stuff we can acquire, the things we can enjoy in this life because of our work. Is that the answer? He calls us next to work to know the frustration of outward success. The frustration of outward success. In verse 18, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. He says again, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. You see what he says here, essentially? Listen, all that you can work for and accumulate in this life cannot be kept. It's been said that you never see a U-Haul following a hearse, right? And you know what's even worse? You know what's even worse? The fact that you can't take it with you? He says some chump is going to enjoy what you work so hard for. That's my translation. It's like some fool is going to get my stuff. Everything I work so hard for, all of my money, all of my things, all of my possessions, some fool is going to get it. And this is infuriating to the preacher. He's like, they didn't earn it. Why should they get it? That's why some people at the end of their lives, you know, some people, they've seen the futility of possessions and money and stuff, the treasures from earth that they've stored up at the end of their life. I mean, some of the grumpiest people in the world, and some of them are so vindictive and spiteful, they think about this idea of leaving this boatload of money and possessions to somebody else, and they cannot fathom it. You know, they don't want to leave it to their spoiled brat kids or their, their family who, who they cut off, you know, decades ago, so they leave it, like, to their dog, you know, if I can't enjoy it, nobody will. Stick it to them. Wealth provides the illusion of immortality, but more than that, it provides the illusion of meaning and purpose in life. It provides this sense that you've actually accomplished something, that you've actually been valuable and worthwhile. I watched this documentary the other day and uh, it was a documentary on billionaires and their newest hobby, um, yachts. Apparently, it's a big deal in the billionaire community. If some of you ever get there, let me know. You can validate this. But, but billionaires today, the big thing that they go after to demonstrate their wealth is to buy the biggest and best yacht. They work with yacht designers. They, accum- they, they just amass this amount of wealth, and they just dump it into these, these yachts. And tr- these, y- these boats are truly incredible. Like, it's amazing. And, and the... 
the show or the, the documentary started off following this one character, and he's a billionaire who lives in the U.S. And at the beginning or at the of the the episode, it says that he, you know, he heard he found out he was going to die. He got he had cancer and he wasn't going to live very long. And he had amassed this massive fortune into the billions, and so he decided that he was going to spend his money and use it for what he wanted. And so he built this crazy, you know, building this home that cost multi millions of dollars, and he he purchased this seventy five million dollar yacht. And, and it's fully decorated, it's beautiful. You just see the art he has in it. But, but throughout the, the, sh- the documentary, you see what he does is he uses this to show off to his friends. He's constantly having parties, and, he, and he's very outspoken about this. I want them to see how much I'm worth. I want them to see what I've accomplished. I want them to know how important I am. He's saying these things in the show. In fact, on, on one occasion, in the middle of the, the documentary, he's actually in Monaco celebrating his friend getting her first yacht, and it's not as nice as his, so in the party time, as they're celebrating her yacht, he says, I'll tell you what, my yacht's parked over there. Let's go see mine. It's way better. <laughs> and he brings her and a group of her friends over, and he prances around showing them his yacht, and aren't I pretty special? And the end of the episode, the end of the documentary, it ends like this, that he had eventually put his yacht up for sale because he was in the process of building something bigger and better. Look how important I am. Bigger, better, more, different. It's never enough. But the reality is when death strikes him and when death strikes every single one of us, all that he has and all that we have will be handed off to someone else who may revel in it or who may entirely ruin it. It will be given over to somebody who didn't work for it or earn it and who doesn't deserve it. And in verse 20, look what he says here. So I turned and I gave my heart up to despair again. It's going to be enjoyed by somebody else. He looks at all of his toil and he essentially says, what was the point? Always working to attain, and then you've got to work so hard to maintain. And, And this here, this relentless cycle of more, better, different keeps you in this place of fear and protection over what you already have. It's like the person who buys a brand new car and parks it all by itself at the back of a parking lot, right? Oh, I love my new car so much, I don't want anybody to touch it or scratch it. And, and they go into the mall and shop, but all the while they're thinking, I hope nobody touched my car. I hope nobody, you see what I mean? You can't actually enjoy the very thing the money bought you. And by the way, Solomon knows a little bit about what he's talking about here. And I'm sure he would have been interested to see how things turned out with his fortune. First Kings 10, it tells us about the massive amount of wealth that Solomon himself accumulated and acquired. It was like nothing the world had ever seen. I mean, Microsoft, Amazon, move over, right? Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates had nothing on Solomon. He had so much wealth. People flocked from all over the world, not only to see his wisdom, but to see his wealth and the possessions and the things that he had done. He was praised like nobody else in his time. But Solomon would eventually die, and listen to what it says. Everything would be handed over to his son, Rehoboam, and it says this in 1 Kings 14. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, the king of Egypt came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. 
And in 1 Kings, it actually tells us that his son was so foolish and so wicked and so evil, he actually lost 10 twelfths of his father's kingdom. Verse 22, Solomon says, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart? Notice the language here changes. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. His conclusion is is actual hatred of work itself. Toil, he says, the toil has become so despairing. You know, every job we have requires a degree of toil And it produces within every one of us, this kind of toil, a deep unrest in our soul. A weariness of soul because of the striving that's taking place, not just with our hands or with our mind, but with our heart. It pulls all of us into this picture of work and this pursuit of meaning. It involves your heart because, listen, ultimately you are trying to achieve something. You're trying to make something of yourself. You're trying to define yourself. Find meaning for yourself. So much so, some of us throw our hearts and souls into our work that even in the night, the the one time when we should be resting and being rejuvenated for the next day's labors, we can't find ourselves settling down enough. We still find ourselves fixated on all that needs to be done, right? Some of you in here, you're like this. You go to bed at night and it takes you five hours to fall asleep. You're lying there on your pillow and you're freaking out about all you have to do. All the anxiety comes rushing in the moment you try to settle down. Your heart is in utter turmoil, thinking about the boss you have to please, the employees you have to deal with, the projects, the finances, the future. Everything comes crashing in on you. Some of you have to jump up out of bed and jump back on your computer, start sending emails, making notes, and reading reports, and doing whatever you've got to do. Some of you are like, i got to go right now. Statistics show that 40% of all adults in Canada have major sleep problems. Many of them, a vast majority, are related to work. The number is greater in the United States. It was 60%. That's because, listen, the heart cannot rest when we try to find our meaning and value in work. When we put all our eggs in that basket, our heart cannot settle down. Our very existence depends upon it. If you work for work's sake or wealth's sake, you end up with nothing. It's frustrating because we long for a sense of permanence, but we cannot obtain it. Solomon's going to talk about this in the next chapter, that God has put eternity in our hearts. We long for something that is eternal, something that exists outside of us, something that is permanent. For things that endure, for things that last. We long to endure. We long to last. That's why we fight for things like legacy. That's why we cling to what we have so desperately. But they don't. Genesis 3 tells us that this is actually what life is like under the curse. This is what it's like in life outside of the Garden of Eden. You see, God, Genesis 3 tells us, created the world as good. He created man and woman as very good, and he actually gave them work to do. He said, keep this garden, work this garden, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over everything. Go to work, he said. For some of you, this is disappointing news. You see, God created work good. 
It has great value and dignity. It's a means by which, listen, we actually reflect who God is to the world. God works, so we work. We mimic him to the world around us. We display him. But when sin entered the world, we see that work was deeply affected. It was fractured. Toil became hard and wearisome and painful. It became something that we longed to find our identity in. It was not always that way. Rebellion made work a huge burden so that it became toil by the sweat of our brow. And that's what the preacher is picking up on here. He's reminding us, listen again, you just have to hear the echoes here of Eden that are carried throughout this book. We live in this broken world. This is not the way it's supposed to be. We've distorted things. Sin has entirely flipped things upside down. And we need to be reminded in our culture, in our day and age, just like Solomon did, that work and wealth do not give you ultimate meaning and purpose. They can't. They never could. Our culture, perhaps, more than ever, is trying to weave together this concept of work and joy. Do you notice that? I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, yeah, work's terrible, I hate my job, if I could only do something I love, right? Somehow, listen, people equate in their minds that if they do something they love, then their whole life would be fulfilled and satisfied. I got news for you. That's not the way this works. And by the way, we are privileged if we get to do something we love. Do you understand that? Do you realize that the vast majority of the world does not get to choose something they love? They do what they need to do to survive. To do what we love is a great privilege, and I'm not in any way minimizing that. I'm, I'm trying to bring a reality check into the mix that, you, that if, if you believe that somehow, if simply you had the job of your dreams, your life would be complete, it will not work. that's what you think will solve your problems, you fail to see the bigger picture at work. And I would say to you that that mentality is actually ruining your ability to enjoy the simple things in life. Your fixation on the better job and the better life produces within you a state of constant discontentment and therefore frustration and despair. You never have what you believe you deserve. You never have what you believe you need. And so you live in this place of trying to get, 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 grab, grab, grab. And when you get it, you realize it didn't fulfill, so you reach for more, for different. Everything in life is soured by your flawed perspective and deeply flawed belief. So focused on trying to achieve success and make something of ourselves, we often find that we cannot enjoy the good that the Lord has placed right in front of us. We're like a kid who sits down at the dinner table with a beautiful plate of food in front of him and then stomps his feet and slams a table and whines and says, I don't want that. I want something else, right? What does every parent say? I mean, I know you've been there with me, right? There are kids starving in Africa. They'd love to eat that food, right? How many times... There's some truth in that, isn't there, right? What we're trying to convey in moments of discontentment and of wanting more, of better or of different, that you should enjoy what is actually right in front of you. That what you have is actually something very valuable. And how many of us, listen, so busy fixated on what we don't have and what we think we need, can enjoy the meal that God has put right in front of us? 
We have the tendency to do one of two things in this life when it comes to work. We either try to deify work or we try to demonize work. We make it our idol, the place where we find our identity. We become a workaholic. We define ourselves by what we do. Or, listen, we make it our enemy. And every day is drudgery. Every day is pain. Every day is terrible. I mean, TGIF can't come fast enough, right? But the Bible doesn't allow us to do either one of those two things. The Bible reminds us that work is not God, but that work is good. Divine discontentment is the goal here. You see, this idea that work can't provide ultimate meaning is is intended by God and by Solomon in this text to force us to this place where we feel the weight of its emptiness, where we reach beyond it to what cannot be found under the sun. It pushes us, you see. This is the goal of the author. This is the goal of the Spirit of God in your life and mine, to push us outside of finding meaning and work and over and above the sun once again to this point here, finally, to work to know the fortune of upward success. The fortune of upward success, to know the true treasures of upward success. And in verse 24 through 26, he kind of brings a note of hope and joy into the picture He says there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. He says this also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. He says, in essence, listen, work for this. Work for upward success. Work for the upward reward of God and the enjoyment that can be found in him. But here's the irony. You can't earn this. You can't actually work for this. It's a gift. You see, what what exactly is the gift that's mentioned here that's being pointed out? Listen, here it is. Listen, enjoyment. Enjoyment. It's mentioned a number of times in just a a few short verses. The idea that we are to enjoy is a gift of God. And in both inward and outward success, listen, the reason we can't enjoy those things and that kind of success in an ultimate sense is because we experience a sense of entitlement. And when you experience entitlement in what you're doing, it actually is a joy killer. When you come to to the the things of life and you say, I deserve this, I've worked hard for this, I've earned this, you're operating with a sense of entitlement, but the upward success talked about here, it strips away any sense of entitlement at all. It calls us, listen, not to achieve, but to receive. It tells us here that God is the one who grants That God is actually the source of all enjoyment and all of the things we seek, all of the things we do, and all of the things we know. You see, you could achieve all and acquire all, but never find or enjoy any of it. You may find it, in fact, empty. And only God, the preacher says, can enable you to enjoy these things. And some of you are like, really? It's a gift? No, 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 you don't understand my life. I did it all. 
I am a self-made individual. I worked hard. I accomplished this. I earned everything I have. I put my mind to it. I put my hands to the plow. I did all of this. And to that, listen, the preacher would simply say, really? Really? Who, who gave you that body? Who gave you those two hands and those two feet? Who gave you that mind and that intellect and the abilities that you have, the giftedness that you have? Who gave you all that you're using to accomplish such, such great things? Who gave you all of the opportunities that, you've, that have been afforded to you in this life? And you say, no, 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 I made it all happen for myself, to which I would say, who gave you that breath you just breathed? Who gave you the beat of your heart right now? Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 12, and listen to what he says. He told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You want to know where true fortune lies? It's in what only God can give. Don't you see all of life, including work and any enjoyment from it or, or any enjoyment from pleasure or from wisdom and knowledge? Listen, all of it is a gift from God. It's given to those, it says here, who please him. But to the sinner, literally, that word can be translated, but to the offender, it's the task of gathering and collecting so that they can give it to somebody else to enjoy, specifically the one who pleases God. You say, well, how do I know what category I'm in? How do I know if I'm, a, I'm one of the ones who pleases God or if I'm one of the ones who has offended God, if I'm in the, the sinner category in this equation? It's really simple. It's right in the text. Here it is, okay? The one who pleases God is the one who receives God. Okay? The one who pleases God is the one who receives God. In other words, the way you please God is by receiving his gift to you. So how do I please God? Receive. How do I offend God? Reject. That's how you know what category you're in in this passage. The person who tries to determine their own meaning and purpose through their work will enjoy in the end nothing, and it will all be given to, over to someone else, and he says that is vanity. Why would you want that? Now, for some of us, listen, in this room, the thought that everything is to be received by a gift is totally infuriating. Maybe even as a Christian, you really wrestle with this and, and you, you, you really struggle with this concept that enjoyment even from the Lord is a gift. The whole idea of a gift is disturbing. And here's why. Because for you, life is all about what you deserve and what you think you've earned. And the idea that enjoyment is a gift, it offends us because we have convinced ourselves that enjoyment comes from what we can do. Because in our rebellion, we long to be self-sufficient. One author told the story about how he, when he first came to Christ and he shared his faith with his friends, you know, he'd often hear from his friends, man, your faith is a crutch. 
Your Christianity is a crutch, and he said he had two responses. He said, first, first response was this, why you got to be such a crutch hater? The second response was this, like, what's wrong with crutches, right? Like, what's, what's wrong with crutches? If I got a broken leg, the crutch is the most amazing thing in the world. The only problem is to enjoy the benefit of a crutch, you have to be humble. You have to be able to see, I can't do this on my own, I'm broken, and I need help. You see, but achievers hate this. Self-defined individuals hate this. It offends their sense of self-sufficiency. Why? Because deep down, you are actually working for your own salvation. And it has become your savior, the thing you think will redeem your life and giving it ultimate meaning and purpose. You see, I have done it is tantamount to saying, I am God. But when you get to the end and it's all stripped away and given to somebody else, you will hate what you've done because it cannot provide what you thought it could. When you're earning, you feel entitled. When you're receiving, you're humbled. Guess which one is freed up to enjoy the simple things in life? You know, Jesus embraced this principle in the Beatitudes, didn't he? He said, and the meek shall inherit the earth. If you are living life based upon what you think you deserve and what you think you can earn, I want to urge you this morning, you need a wake-up call. You don't want to know what the Bible says about what you deserve and what you've earned, but I'm going to tell you anyways. You're like, what, what do I deserve? Just tell me. Are you sure you want to know? Yes, I desperately want to know, what have I earned? What do I deserve? I want what I deserve. Are you sure you want what you deserve? You sure you want to know what the Bible says? Yes, tell me what you deserve. Listen, the Bible says you deserve hell. The Bible says you deserve eternal damnation and separation from the blessing and presence of God forever and ever and ever. That's what the Bible says you deserve. For the wages of sin is death, the Bible says. This is what all of your working and all of your laboring and all of your self-sufficiency, all of your ability to define yourself apart from God has got you to this place. You deserve the just punishment of a holy and righteous God. That's what you deserve and that's what I deserve. You don't deserve anything, and neither do I, but death because of our sin and our rebellion. And if you get this, listen, you get what the book of Ecclesiastes is pointing us to, the gift of the gospel, right? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Free gift. To the one who pleases God, the Bible says it is impossible to please God without faith. And the truth is, we are saved by works, aren't we? Just not our own. It doesn't come through your work, but it does come through the work of someone else. It comes through the work of the true preacher king, Jesus Christ, who came into this world to work. He worked, yes, as a carpenter, but he worked, more importantly, as our savior. He worked to perfectly fulfill the law, perfectly obeyed the law by giving his life at the end as a sacrifice for our sins. He perfectly worked to pay for the penalty for our sins, the wages that we deserved and that we had earned. Jesus Christ hung on a cross and he paid for them in full and he declared it is finished. He worked to rise from the grave, to be exalted to the right hand of the Father where he sat down, completed his work. And yet, listen church, he has not finished working on your behalf for he is at the right hand of the Father interceding on your behalf. Even now. 
And we receive this work as a free gift of his grace. It cannot be earned or merited. And by faith, he takes what we earned and he gives what he earned. So that God looks at us and what he sees is not us and our sinful mess. This is good news, church. He doesn't see your sinful mess. He doesn't see all your failures, all of your mistakes, all of the horrible decisions you've made to potentially ruin your life. He looks at you and what he sees instead is his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. And he accepts you on the basis of his son and his work, not on the basis, praise God, of our work. And now we can enjoy all life, including our work, as a gift because we have found true joy in the giver. See, if you want to enjoy your work, the answer is not to get a new job. Listen, listen, it's to get a new boss. His name is Jesus. You need to work for Jesus, not for a legacy, not for stuff, not for validation or meaning or purpose. Work for the one who has worked for you and continues to work for you even now. And see, as we enter into his work, we now find how we can have enjoyment in our work where we're not striving to find our identity and purpose in it because we've already found it in his finished work. And so I just really quickly, really fast bullet points here, I want to give to you as a result of this a gospel work ethic, just four things that you can do to make sure your work is not where you're finding identity and to make sure your work fits rightly in its place. First thing is this, seek the things that are above Seek the things that are above. Your value and worth are in Jesus and in his work. Your identity is not in what you have done or what you can do. They're in what he has done. So make sure your eyes are fixated upon him and all that he's done on your behalf. Secondly, store up treasures above. Enjoy and use the things of life. Yes, absolutely, but do so with an eternal perspective. Could it be that God has given you the resources and the wealth that you have not to be squandered on things that you would most enjoy, but to be used to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Third, serve the one who is above. You see, with this perspective, you can see work as worship. There's a bigger perspective of your job here. Your work is worse. You say, yeah, but my work is hard. So what? Work as unto the Lord. You say, yeah, but you don't understand. I got a bunch of goofs that I work with. I mean, my office. So why do you think you're there? It's a mission field that God has placed you in. So you better have character and integrity and honor. You better show them what it looks like to be a servant of the king, King Jesus Christ. Your life better be attractive and drawing them in, not something that repels them because of how ungodly you are. Lastly, and really importantly for some of you, sleep to the glory of the one above. You should get a couple hallelujahs. Sleep to the glory of the one above. I mean, no more freaking out and anxiety over your work life. You, you can't let it dominate you. Listen, you need to sit down on the edge of your bed every night and say, God, I know I've got a lot on the go. I know there's a lot to do. Listen, but you are king of the universe. You rule this universe. You hold everything in the palm of the hands. You have given me this job. You have given me these resources. You have given me this bed, and I am going to sleep for the glory of God. That's what you should do. God, you bear the weight of the world on your shoulders. I don't need to bear the weight of my work on mine every night.
And what you're saying essentially is you are God and I am not, so I will sleep as if it all depends upon you. Listen, through Jesus, you can stop trying to get what you think you deserve and start enjoying what you don't deserve. 